0: Mrs. French's cat is missing. The signs are posted all over town. Have you seen Honey? We've all seen the posters, but nobody has seen Honey the cat. Nobody. Here's a Japanese Sneaking on with a
1: Just an old second Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker, I'm Scott Norwood and I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're going to be looking at the film Pontypool. Before we get into that however,
0: Matt, I understand you had a fun time last weekend.
1: Yeah, my, uh, myself, Mike Mason, Oscar
2: Rios uh, were invited by the Into the Darkness group headed up by Tom Raley to do a discussion on scenario design broadcast As- on YouTube. Yeah. Oh, so it was broadcast live. Yeah, yeah, oh, we, right. we had a we had a list of people um, that were typing away, um, asking questions throughout the whole thing. And throwing some yeah, actually quite some interesting and kind of technical questions out there about scenario design, which is oh which right. is really cool. Because yeah. I've still yet to catch up with that, but that's out there as a podcast, right? So we can find that on Into the Darkness. Yeah, that's yeah. it. They, well, they do mainly a lot of actual play recordings of games that they've recently finished doing, amidst the ancient trees. They've done uh, Blackwater Creek and Deadlight as a combination. They're about to do Dockside Dogs as well. Right, so they're about to start that.
0: Yeah. I think technically they're not a podcast. They they put it up on YouTube, so it's, it's videos.
2: Uh, rather than oh, just okay. audio recordings, right, hmm. right, yeah, they're, they're a good bunch, and so they've
1: done a, done a lot of fun stuff. Or oh, we'll, no, we'll link to those in the show notes. We shall. Mm-hmm. What about yourself, Scott? What have you been up to? Nothing that exciting. Mostly over the last few weeks. Well, or Christmas is a busy time for you, right?
0: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All those oh, presents oh, to oh. deliver,
1: and <laughs> I just don't don't stop. <laughs> the,
0: the number of times over Christmas I've been called Santa. At least it makes a change from being called Gandalf. But yeah. Uh, I mean, you can tell Christmas is over because, you know, yesterday I was walking into work and I yeah, I had some guy pass me on the redway and just look at me say, you know, I did a double take and thought, oh, it said, I thought I was in Lord of the Rings there for a moment. <laughs> oh, that seems
1: off. a bit unfair. <laughs> um, but anyway, Hagrid, what have you been up to over the Christmas period?
2: <laughs> What's up? Uh, well, okay. It was in a film every day because they ran all the eight films back to back, didn't they?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have been called Hagrid since my beard went grey. But yes, anyway, I, I did, a I I guess, a bit of work over Christmas, uh, so I've been working on some stuff for Cthulhu Dark, a series of linked scenarios, which you know, I, I think is going to be part of the upcoming Kickstarter, um, all set in Victorian London, and, yeah, perhaps a, a side of Victorian London you don't tend to see in Gaslight Cthulhu games. So, yeah, I've been having a bit of fun with those. Um... And uh, yeah, yeah, been uh, working on uh, something that Matt's been working on as well, which is a contribution for the upcoming Stygian Fox collection, uh, mm-hmm. sharp little needles, or yeah, or it's, the, it's it's sharp, fears sharp, sharp, little sharp
2: little needles. I think oh, they that's renamed right. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's it called? Fears sharp little needles. It's a collection of twenty-four, uh, as the blurb puts it, um, horrifying forays into terror.
1: And so they're it? all like short. Scenarios of about three thousand words or so. Yeah, two yeah. two and a half thousand words
0: is meant to be the target, and you've got up to three thousand words at a push.
1: Two
2: nine nine five. That was me at my final <laughs> submission. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the Kickstarter for that should be going live fairly imminently, mm. from what I'm from what I know.
1: Cool. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to that. Yeah. What does that mean, Scott?
0: It means that it's time once again for the Lovecraftian word of the. Week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week.
2: This week, our word is unnameable. An adjective, there's only one meaning this time. Yeah, you let me off lightly. One, not able to be named. No shit, Sherlock. Especially because too bad or
1: horrific. This is definitely a Lovecraftian word, isn't it? Unnameable. Well, there's a title as well. Yeah, he uses it in a title and he uses it quite a bit in his story. So he uses it 22 times.
0: Yeah, and this is something of a cliche in, in Lovecraft, isn't it? People accuse him of this a lot, and to be fair, he's mostly innocent of it. But this idea that he describes things as being indescribable, and then goes on and describes them.
2: Hmm. It's this indescribable, hideous, shapeless mass in my basement.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, we're going to have to link to that Berniston sketch, aren't we? Oh, yes. (laughs) Lovecraft, I think in his earlier stories, was a bit more guilty of doing this. But certainly as we move on to his later stories, I mean, dear God, in things like at The Mountains of Madness uh, and um, The Shadow of Time, the amount of detail that he goes into in describing these creatures, I mean, you, you, can, you, you come away with a vivid mental image of exactly what they look like.
1: But they are—they do remain unnamed, though. I mean, he refers, he refers to them as the Elder Things at some points in Antarctica, but we don't really get a name for them. So that this unnameable thing kind of yes. sums up a sort of... We don't really even know what they are. Especially once he also decides to call them old ones as well, just yeah. to confuse issues.
2: Absolutely.
0: And, yeah, I suppose this is one of my favourite things about the mythos, that complete lack of consistency makes it feel more real and certainly more alien. Anyway, let's take a look at how Lovecraft himself used the word unnameable in his stories.
2: From the case of Charles Dexter Ward. It is hard to explain just how a single sight of a tangible object with measurable dimensions could so shake and change a man. And we may only say that there is about certain outlines and entities a power of symbolism and suggestion which acts frightfully on a sensitive thinker's perspective and whispers terrible hints of obscure cosmic relationships and unnameable realities behind the protective illusions of common
1: vision. And from the Dunwich Horror. The average of their intelligence is woefully low, whilst their annals reek of overt viciousness and of half-hidden murders, incests, and deeds of almost unnameable violence and perversity.
0: And finally, from the unnameable. Besides, he added, My constant talk about unnameable and unmentionable things was a very puerile device, quite in keeping with my lowly standing
1: as an author. And now on to our main topic, Pontypool.
0: Well, this is a topic that was suggested uh, a few months back when we had one of our semi-regular chats with our Patreon backers. I I believe it was David Smith who suggested that we do a little segment on Pontypool. I must admit, as much as I like Pontypool, and I I saw it many years ago and really enjoyed it, it hadn't actually occurred to me as a topic for the podcast. But um, as soon as David mentioned it, then, yeah, it suddenly clicked that this would be a really good one to talk about.
1: So this is a Canadian film from 2008, set in the small town of Pontypool, Ontario. Now, for years, I thought this was set in Wales because there is a Pontypool in Wales, right? Yes. Yeah. So I just thought it was. So I was kind of surprised.
2: Mm. Yeah. No, me too. I was thinking it was. Uh, it was an English setting or Welsh setting. <laughs> yeah,
0: don't don't make them
2: that mad. No. <laughs> Not as bad <laughs> if you go to Scotland. Admittedly, <laughs> we, we have
0: we have Welsh listeners who will send us hate mail. Well, no, no. Sorry. let, <laughs> let, let, me, let me rephrase that. Send your hate mail to Matt. Don't. This film was adapted by Tony Burgess uh, from his own novel, uh, which was called Pontypool Changes Everything. came out in 1995. Now, the novel is a very different beast from the film. The novel is much more a series of uh, narratives. It's a much uh, less coherent story. Yeah, it gives a much broader picture of what's happening. The film, Pontypool, on the other hand, focuses on a very small part
1: of the story. But the Germans have it right, though. They called the film "Fear of the Living Dead: Radio Zombie."
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> they, they should have called it that in English as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a good long title, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah in th- German that's all one word.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think. Yeah, if the film had been called that in English, it might have changed expectations somewhat. But yeah, apparently Tony Burgess wrote this script in about forty-eight hours. He'd adapted it uh, simultaneously, both as a film and as a radio play. Uh, I've not heard the radio play, but I can imagine it really working as such. Mm. And I believe that he was influenced in doing so uh, from an interview I read by Orson Welles's famous version of, of War of the Worlds. Mm. With the same kind of approach of doing a radio broadcast, you know, as a play about a radio broadcast, I can see really working in this case. Mm. There were originally supposed to be sequels to this film as well, but it looks like they never got off the ground. Um, The second film, Pontypool Changes, was uh, supposed to be uh, in production, I believe, in 2010. But looking at IMDb, it's, it's still showing as being in production, but I can't believe six or seven years later that it's actually going anywhere.
1: And now we discuss the synopsis of Pontypool. The film opens up with our main guy, Mazzy, as we learn his name is, as a kind of a grizzled fellow, a middle-aged fellow with a kind of cowboy hat, driving along through a, a snowstorm, and... We get the scene of him pulling up somewhere, maybe at a junction or a bridge or something. And this woman comes up and knocks on his uh, on the w- on the passenger window, and he, he winds down the window. And what's she saying? She's saying something to him. Yeah, but
0: it's all broken up in the wind. You can't really hear what she's saying.
1: But she seems to be repeating it a few yeah. times, doesn't she? And he's just kind of freaked out by this, and, and just just drives on, doesn't he? He's like, yeah. what the hell.
0: And we find out that where he's driving on to is the local radio station in Pontypool, where he has been recently hired as the new morning DJ. Uh, We're not given an awful lot of explicit backstory for Massey, but it seems that he was perhaps a big-time shock jock on another station who fell from grace for some reason and has ended up resorting to working on small-town radio now.
1: Well, as he says, he takes no prisoners. And this is a phrase that he uses a lot, you know, basically implying that he oversteps the mark and isn't afraid of offending a few people or a lot of people. So falling from grace is pretty much from what um, you were
2: telling me earlier, because I hadn't come across the term "shock jock" until we'd uh, been discussing this. Um,
1: seems to be an ocu- ocu- potential occupational hazard for most of them. I think part of the idea is that the more controversial you, you are, the more people that phone in. So it just doesn't yeah. work on the BBC because they just get fired. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I think this is probably more an American thing, but we do see a bit of it in the UK that by voicing contraventri- controversial and outrageous opinions and getting people angry, and, and you know, Grant Massey actually makes this point uh, in, the, the, in the film, that by getting people angry, you know, they're more inclined to listen to him just because they hate him. Yeah, you know, I think Katie Hopkins has built an entire career on this. Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. So in the recording studio, there's our man Massey. There's the producer, Sidney Breyer, and there's also an assistant, Laurel Ann Drummond, who we learn has recently been posted back from Afghanistan. Doesn't really come into our story very much, but, you know, there's the three of them. It's colour.
0: We we start to see the morning broadcast go ahead and almost immediately, you know, Sidney Brier, the um, the producer and Mazzy are, are butting heads over Mazzy's style, that he's you know, right out from the gate, he's being very confrontational, he's making stuff up. Um he's he's embellishing stories in a way that is just winding her up from the get-go.
1: And when we get the traffic reporter called Ken Loney, who phones in from the uh the eye in the sky i can't remember what it's called it's like a helicopter <laughs> apparently that's flying up above and it's like a snowstorm and yet they've got a helicopter up looking down on people and uh mazzy that the dj is kind of taking the mickey out of ken and sort of you know sort of pushing his buttons and then off air the producer says to him look The guy's not really up in a helicopter. He's just in his spare room playing helicopter sound effects. (laughs) No, it's in his car. car. Oh, in his car. He he, he drives
0: around town looking at the traffic, just playing helicopter noises. (laughs) Which is a lovely detail.
1: And everybody kind of buys into this. Nobody minds.
0: But Lonely is reporting uh, on some strange movements of people in Pontypool. Apparently, there's a local doctor, Doctor Mendez, and a crowd has gathered outside his offices. It's less of a crowd and more of a mob. It's turning violent, and it, it seems to be getting quite scary.
1: We're getting poor kind of secondhand reports as well, aren't they? Of you know of, of quite what's going on, and it's kind of hard to to, to gain a clear picture of it. Helicopter Ken's report gets broken up and they lose touch with him. I think we get more information
2: about a missing cat than we do about the mob to begin with.
0: Yeah, actually, mm. that's a good point. We haven't mentioned the missing cat. And this sounds completely tangential. And depending on how you read the film, it might be completely tangential. Early on in the film, we see this poster, I think as as is driving into work, for a missing cat called Honey. And it comes up in conversation, um, but... But we'll yeah. come back to yeah, it. Yeah, we will. Mm-hmm. But yes, before Lonely is cut off, uh, he does mention that there have been a number of deaths uh, at uh, outside Dr Mendes' office. And they try to confirm it. They're phoning around trying to get more details, but not really getting too far. But they've got more pressing things to deal with.
1: Indeed. They've got Lawrence and the Arabians coming in. <laughs> OK. OK, fine. Let's do it. Find out how the fuck rehearsals are going in fucking Arabia!
2: Come
0: on, gang! Come on! The never desert is a sandfield here. If you fall off your camel, it cannot hear. The never desert is a sandfield here. If you fall off your camel, it cannot hear. But I can hear the boy. Lying in the night We need the boy's life To prove that we are right This is why i can hear him sleeping Still in the sand I must save him So a lesser man Will understand
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Yeah, this is <laughs> I... One of the things I really like about this film is that I mean it works as a tense thriller, you know, as a horror movie. But there are all these moments of absolute sheer bloody absurdity in there, and this is one of them. That you know, Mazzy is is really put out because in the midst of all this, he has to interview this this local singing group called Lawrence and the Arabians, who have turned up in in really crappy mock Bedouin dress with with. Uh, you know, almost, almost blackface
2: on. Yeah, for, oh, totally. For radio.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, to, to come along and, and sing for the audience. J- just as an aside, you know, one of, the, one of the members of the group, and I think it is actually Lawrence, is actually Tony Burgess, the writer of the film.
2: I, I think he gets uh, called various nicknames by Mazzy, including um, Osama bin Laden at one point.
0: <laughs> yes. yes, yeah, he is, he is far... Far less than complimentary.
2: Although it does lay an important seed, though, even with that, uh, with the moment of absurdity, that there is a cute little young girl who's with them <laughs> as one of the singers. Yeah. She's looking a little bit bewildered and lost by the end of their their singing.
0: Yeah, I, mm. I mean, that is actually a, an important point because that's foreshadowing. I mean, she is, at that stage, one of the first people, in fact, probably the first person we see in the early stages of Infection.
1: So then we move on and his morning radio broadcast continues, interspersed with bits of news. And then, kind of out of the blue, the BBC call up for more details and they patch him through to the, the to the radio booth. And uh, so Mazzy is now talking to the BBC. Kind of almost like a rabbit in headlights. He's just yeah. staring going what the hell am I supposed to say?
0: <laughs> yeah, because you know he genuinely doesn't know anything. In earlier scenes, we see him you know, quite happily just making stuff up. But here, you know, I think he suddenly realises that this is something that counts. And so he goes for absolute honesty and it's just sort of, yeah, 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 we, we don't know. We don't know. So we, we really don't know. No, yeah, no, we... no, we don't know.
1: <laughs> but then cut back to Loney and our, our helicopter guy is now desperate for his uh, his own safety, I think, and has taken refuge, we learn, in a grain silo. So he's, he's calling in on a mobile uh, phone and he recounts having seen acts of cannibalism and dismemberment yeah. happening, you know, not far away. People ripping limbs off, people trying to crawl inside each other's
0: bodies, he's, he says at some stage, which is just such a, a bizarre image.
1: But at this point, I think it has to be said that, you know, and I don't know how Mazzy feels, but I kind of feel a little bit that he's like, why is all this crap? Is this real? Are you yeah. pulling my leg here? Because mm-hmm. yeah. we're we're kind of shut off in the radio studio and it's a snowstorm outside. So even if they go out, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're fairly remote and it's like yeah is this stuff really happening what what is going on cuz it's all yeah. pretty incredible
0: yeah and we we probably haven't reiterated this enough after that initial scene of them driving up or, or of grant massey driving up Almost everything we see in this film takes place in the studio, and particularly in booth. I and mean, This is a very, very enclosed film. When we have our contacts with the outside world, it is purely over the telephone or, you know, over remote links to the BBC. We, we're not... When we hear about these things, we're not seeing them. We're just hearing these, these
1: horrible re- accounts of them. And that might sound somewhat undramatic as a viewer, but actually I found it very engaging, the fact that... Mm. You know, I felt like I was there in in the radio studio with these reports coming in, and you're getting pictures of it. It's a bit like almost listening to a radio broadcast yourself. You know, you're making pictures of what's happening in your own mind um, and and feeling a sympathy with those people locked in that radio studio. Hmm. And way to stretch a budget on a zombie movie, right? Oh, God, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, are they zombies? Well, we'll come to this. Yeah.
0: And then things start getting really weird. Well... At least they start getting French. (laughs) Sacre bleu. Yeah, there is this broadcast uh, that, that cuts in, or this transmission that cuts into their broadcast in French. Drummond, the, the, uh, the, the studio engineer, is translating it as, as it goes along. And the, trans- the transmission basically says to remain indoors, don't use terms of endearment, don't use baby talk, don't use rhetorical discourse, and most of all, don't use the English language. Pontypool is now under quarantine.
2: The bit that did make me burst out laughing, though, was when he reads the last line, saying, "Do not translate this message." <laughs> yeah, he just, "Oops!" Yeah. After <laughs> yeah. he's
0: just translated the whole thing over
1: the air. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, that is really quite a sinister thing, though, because again, they're sort of piecing it together, and the all the instructions just sound so nonsensical, but you know, you get the impression that there's real life and death stuff behind this.
1: And then we cut back to Loney again. I think if I were playing a character in this game, I'd want to, you know, PC, I'd want to play Loney. I don't know why. <laughs> he's now with some infected guy uh, who he's managed to kind of um, take out pretty much, who's I, well, uh, badly I, as, injured. Someone yeah, else has guy, taken him out, I think. I think. Then, right.
0: Yeah, I think it's, you yeah, know, when he broke into the grain silo, he got injured, and, yeah, he'd, he'd lost the use of his legs or something like that. He'd, you yeah, know, he'd
2: ended up... I thought he'd been battered and broken, that he's... Uh, his ribs, his ribs were
1: exposed. He'd been really yes. torn up a lot. So Lone is looking at this badly injured guy on the floor, and he holds his his phone up to what this guy is saying, and this guy is now talking in a child's voice. No, Ken, I didn't get it. I didn't. I don't get anything okay, okay, right okay, now. Okay, okay, okay. Let's. I'm
0: gonna. I'm gonna try that again. Uh, okay. Listen, and, and, and keep in mind. Uh, picture this. This is what you you're about to hear is coming from Mary Galt big teenage boy. He's he's lying here in the dark with his body. It's, it's broken to pieces and his wrists, I, I can see them. They're stumps. They're not stumps. They're pointing up at his sides. No, I, great. I, I, what just, are we doing? Listen, 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 listen.
1: Well, with all this, it's now Mazzy's time to be freaked out. Mazzy, our DJ, just is like, I've had enough of this. I'm off. He fails his sand check and he wants out. Well, I think he wants to find out what the hell is going on, doesn't he?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Briars tries to stop him, but he goes up, goes up to the exit, uh, goes outside. It turns out that they're not alone.
1: You don't want to get their attention.
0: The infected people have started turning up uh, and the radio station is effectively under siege. Especially
2: considering they have a loudspeaker out the front, which reminded me a little bit of Gross Point Blank. Oh, yes. With the the radio station there having the uh, microphone at the front of the building. Yeah. That's just broadcasting to the outside world where normally it would just be a street where not many people are just going to stand and listen. So it just seemed remarkably pointless.
1: (laughs) But, yeah, so they bar the doors and uh, head back in. Uh, At this point, the female assistant, Drummond... Starts behaving a little oddly, repeating words strangely, and at the same time they've got down in the in the studio they've got a little gas ring and a kettle, and that starts to whistle. And the producer takes the the kettle off the boil, but still we hear the ooh noise. And the camera pans around and there's Drummond just stood there making the sound of the kettle whistling.
0: And yeah, that is a scene that sounds like it should be absurd. But it's actually really quite chilling. Hmm.
2: It is creepy, especially just looking at her uh, almost a thousand-yard unblinking stare. Yeah, as she's becoming human teapot. <laughs>
1: we get there's like we know there's like loaders of a horde around at the front door, and there's weird stuff happening. And now you know, as GM, you'd want to sort of throw in another bang here because you know, like enough's not happening already. This sort of uh, they're kind of in a sub-basement, really, aren't they? And, yeah. and this, this high-up window opens, and this guy is kind of climbing in. At first I thought, oh, my God, it's one of them getting in. And he kind of shakes the snow off, and it's it's Dr. Mendez, <laughs> Just turned up out of the blue through a window.
0: And, and he has come along to dump exposition on everyone.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it is what the plot means. It reminds me a little bit of Dr. Scott from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> yes! <laughs> But, yeah, he turns
0: up uh, wanting to tell his theory of what's happening uh, to the world. So, yeah, Mazzy agrees to interview him. What he has in mind sort of ties in with what we heard from the French broadcast, that he believes that the English language has contracted a virus, that certain words have become infected. But these words won't infect anyone that certain people are predisposed to be infected by certain words so you know it's it's an absolute lottery you know at any stage you could hear one of these infected words and that will be your word and then you know you'll just be stuck on that word as a loop it will consume you and you will start to become something
2: else and this kids is the danger of slang
0: (laughs) and he also mentions that you know someone who's infected in this way is then driven to hunt and and kill
1: and this is the reason that the three of them Mazzy the DJ his producer and Dr Mendez take refuge in the soundproofed recording studio and there's the assistant outside, you know, she can kind of see them, but she can't hear them anymore. So she's just running at the perspex, banging her face off the, off the, uh, yeah. off, the off that thing. And, and like, and that's, know, there's these bloody analogy. splats on the window.
0: Well, it's not just the blood, it's the fact that she tears her lip up and her lips sort of half hanging loose as she's doing this.
1: <laughs> and they're just in shock at her doing this. And at the same time, you know, trying to make their idea rolls to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm until they finally hit upon the idea of, hang on a minute, maybe if she can still see
2: us, can she lip-read?
0: Yeah, yeah, because at that stage, yeah, Mendes has been obsessed with the idea that, you know, the communication only works through speech. But, yeah, that, that, um, you know, then there's the idea that it could actually infect words transmitted in other forms, yeah, like lip-reading.
1: Seems to me that, as a player, that was a really stupid thing to say to the GM. (laughs) I wonder if if they can lip-read. Oh, yes, they can now. <laughs> <laughs> and at this stage, Loney calls back again. <laughs> oh, you can't get enough of Loney.
0: <laughs> Sadly, at this stage, it seems that he has become infected as well. And he's repeating the word sample over and over again. Oh, yeah, we, we, we sort of glossed over this a little bit, but when Drummond started becoming infected, she was repeating the word missing over and over. Yeah, in this case, yeah, uh, sample seems to be Loney's word.
1: Well, Drummond does that until she projectile vomits blood into the window and then falls <laughs> down, sort of uh, out cold, doesn't she? I kept yes. thinking she was going to come back to life. But mm. yeah. but no. M- much to the fascination of Dr Mendes going,
2: oh, so that's what happens! <laughs>
1: yes, yeah. this
0: is what happens if they don't find a victim. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I'm just trying to remember, was it at this stage or just before that happens with that last phone call with Lonnie, Is that the bit where he sort of succumbs to it and everyone's getting very sad about it? And you get that lovely bit from Brian where he's saying, oh, yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah, it's he's, he's, he's very sad. Yeah, we should mourn him. But yeah, he was a paedophile.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just gave him a job. <laughs> yeah, it's a curious bit of pathos, really. Yeah.
0: It's just like the three of them sitting around Sort of, well, how do we process this? How do we feel about him dying?
2: Yeah By this point we've only had Drummond Who's been battering up against the window So the window's probably going to hold Under one person throwing themselves against it Multiply that up By 20 or 30 people As the other I hate to use the word zombies Because they were described more as The horde, the the conversationalists As they're later termed Um, start bouncing up against the window, desperately looking for anyone that they can infect, looking for their target or their victim. Yeah,
0: and and you end up with the the, the three people, the three unaffected people, sitting there in the sound booth, hiding under the the recording desk, trying to avoid being seen by by the infected. Mm
2: -hmm. But even then, they they desperately don't even want to talk to each other. They're just passing notes, which even then they think, well, written word's going to hurt? We don't know. So, I'm trying to use as few of them as possible,
0: and as the things weren't bad enough with them being trapped in this this recording booth, at this stage, Mendez starts to repeat the word "breathe"
2: over and over again.
0: Yeah, uh, but he he's very aware that he's doing it, I and mean, you know, and as he notices himself doing it, he, he suddenly you know frightened and you know clamps his hand over his mouth, and um, he attempts to contain the situation by switching over to speaking Armenian, which no one else there speaks. But, yeah, you know, he's sitting there sort of just nattering away to himself in Armenian.
2: At this point, Mazzy and Briar come up with... Um, they Basically, they pass their idea roll. Uh, they decide, we need a distraction, we need something to lure them out. Uh, so they quickly record a sound bite using the equipment in the sound booth and then project it through the speaker outside. And, of course, Mazzy, just um, repeating the same line over and over again, draws all these wannabe zombies outside. Or at least most of them. Yeah, and they're kind of wandering about, but not any, not focusing on the sound booth anymore.
0: And Mazzy and Briar have sort of taken heed of what uh, Dr. Mendez is doing and are trying to communicate with each other in French. Of course, (laughs) it's it's, it's quite a nice bit there that Briar suggests doing this and then asks uh, Massey whether he speaks any French and he sort of replies a petit peu, tries to downplay how much he speaks. And it turns out that Briar speaks almost no French. She's speaking really fractured Franglais, and Massey's actually doing all right at it. But yeah, they they sort of manage to communicate between them except they're obviously having to use the occasional English word here or there.
1: So, breaking out of the uh, sound booth, Mazzy and Briar um, head out, only to be accosted by a young girl, one from uh, Lawrence and the Arabians. Yes. A bit of uh, brief combat as they take her out. They manage to bar the doors again and then find a a secluded room in which to kind of talk over their plan of of what they're actually going to do. And Briar finds a bottle of whiskey or something and gets progressively more and more drunk.
0: Oh, and also as they're doing this, there's there's the equally wonderfully absurd scene of Mendez just wandering out the way he came in, just clambering back out the window out into the snow.
2: <laughs> yeah, he ends up, because they start um, gathering in force again and trying to break in, that he lures them away by just shouting random lines, the same message that they played over the tannoy outside to try and lure all these people away in the streets.
1: Well, he acts, yeah, he's very much acting as a hero, isn't he, to draw oh, yeah. them away from the uh, Mazi and Briar. And he's never seen again. So Mazzy and Briar get to talking and start to figure a way to maybe counter the virus. This is sort of a montage scene
0: that's obviously supposed to take place over a fair period of time. And she's writing stuff on the walls and drinking from a bottle of whiskey. And as the scene goes on and Mazie is trying to work stuff out, and we see by the time you know it gets to a conclusion, the walls are pretty much covered in writing and she's got through most of the whiskey.
2: That only takes three minutes for most people, I thought.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she doesn't spend the rest of the film vomiting, so it wasn't your trick, Matt.
2: Oh, well. <laughs> She's just doing it wrong.
1: So Mazzy decides to try and confuse the, the virus, perhaps, by... by misunderstanding the word. It's, it's, it's not only just saying the word, but it's also understanding the meaning of the word.
0: Well, it's, it's robbing it of meaning, because he, he uses the example of, you know, you know how when you're a kid, if you say the same word over and over again, it suddenly loses its meaning. You can, you can no longer associate any meaning with that word. And he starts postulating that that might actually prove a defence.
2: Yeah, it's just sound at that point rather than conveying any instructional communication.
0: And he gets a chance to test this. Uh, as Briar starts repeating the word kill.
1: And he suggests other meanings for the word kill. Kill means kiss. Kill is kiss. And after a while, this starts to sink into her, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, he gets her repeating that and starts robbing the word kill of its meaning.
1: And in the end, they end up kissing.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, Briar snaps out of it and, and tells Mazzy to kill her. Uh,
2: Insert snog here. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> But then they uh, return to the sound booth to try to go back on the air and see whether they can get this message out to a larger audience with with Mazzy starting to explain this this theory to to people and you know so, sort of explain how he's managed to you know cure briar and they then just sort of starts going into nonsense sort of just you know robbing all sorts of words of their meaning just by you know giving them completely new ridiculous you know counterintuitive uh, definitions yeah it becomes like a, a
1: kind way. of surrealist manifesto just of uh, you know tree means door
0: the sky is a person laughter is walking yellow is crowded. Friends are
1: verbs.
2: Teeth like I don't think we're saving in the world with
0: shitty haiku.
1: Okay, press I think everybody's a critic. Help me out here. Clink!
0: Clink! Clink. Intake! Trespass! Sniper! Swimming! Um, tomorrow! Fidelity!
2: Monologue! Savage! <laughs> Someone objects. A real helicopter this time. <laughs> proclaiming, from, uh, proclaiming from the skies
1: to Shut up! in French. And yeah. then we get to a countdown from the helicopter above,
0: and yeah, as it approaches zero, Brian and Mazzy kiss each other, and then the screen goes black.
1: Talk about that for an anticlimactic ending. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's. Um, I think. Well, I presume they. It's kind of like a cloverfield moment. They kind of, um, just like nuke the place well
0: except we then have well for a start over the credits there's little bits of all sorts of news broadcasts indicating that the outbreak is spreading across canada uh the the attempts to quarantine things in pontypool haven't worked and this is turning into a wider spread problem and then we have the after credit sequence
1: yeah, the what the fuck moment, as I, kind of, as I put it when I first watched it. I guess we're going to talk about this afterwards, but I guess we should just present it as it appears yeah. here.
0: So it takes place at a bar. Uh, it's shot in black and white.
1: Like Sin City. Yeah. Really look, it, like Sin it, City. That's yeah. why I didn't like it.
0: <laughs> and, yeah, the, the, it's, it's Mazie and Briar dressed in what looks like maybe 1940s and 1950s clothing clothing. Uh, it's, it's got a very sort of, yeah, hard-boiled detective or film noir feel to it. Mm. And they're having this conversation where they're trying to... Oh, well, for a start, it's very clipped, artificial, sort of noirish dialogue. Um, and they're trying to give each other new identities. Uh yeah, you know, Mazzy, you know, says that Briar is now Lisa the Killer and, and Briar says that uh, Mazzy is now Johnny
1: Eyes. And then we leave it with Mazzy explaining that they're going to get out of here.
0: And also, at that stage, the black and white begins to change the colour, and that's just the point at which Mm. we leave.
2: Yeah, admittedly, Mazzy cuts off Brian mid-sentence, and then it just, fin up on the screen. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, let's have a little chat about what we thought of Pontypool.
2: I thought of the thematic link... This is the second film we've talked about where a virus that could potentially end the world breaks out of Canada. Oh,
1: really? What was the other one, Matt?
2: Shivers. The one that had the happy ending, according to
1: David Cronenberg. (laughs) Oh, right. okay, Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all going on in Canada, clearly. Is it a zombie film? Well, they're not strictly zombies, but they are zombies, aren't they? They kind of fall into the the broader zombie uh, definition, I think.
0: Yeah, I guess, you know, it's zombies in the same way that a film like The Crazies would be a zombie film, mm. in that you know, you've know you got people who are infected with something that has driven them into violent insanity, but they're not the living dead. I mean, you know, they, there's a fair few films like that. I mean, yeah, The Signal as well, for example. But more than just the the
1: insanity, thing. it's a kind of mindlessness, isn't it? It's a, it's just a, a kind of like automatic mechanical mindlessness in their actions and yeah. acting to some degree kind of as a horde... Yeah, I mean, they're not trying to eat brains and so on, but they are trying to uh, kill and dismember people, apparently.
0: Yeah, I, from what I understand, there's meant to be a bit more to it than that, but not, not necessarily more than you know, that we see in this film. Um, I've not read Pontypool Changes Everything, but from the little bit I've read about it, I mean, it sounds like some of the narratives come from the people in various stages of infection, and that yeah you know, they, they're not necessarily mindless,
1: but. Well, certainly not know. in the early stages because they yeah. seem to be able to fight it. Um, but I mean, I don't know, they appeared mindless to me. Hmm. Instead of doing the usual cliched zombie of running around going, brains.
2: <laughs> this one, they're going, words, words.
0: <laughs> as we mentioned before, Tony Burgess doesn't refer to them as zombies himself. In interviews, he's described them as conversationalists, which I think is a. A pretty interesting way of talking about them because, you know, it does imply that that exchange—that they're passing on the information as well as receiving it—that it's a two-way thing.
2: It's also a warning that being vaguely sociable and talking to people could turn you into a zombie. I knew that staying at home and burying
1: myself in writing was a good idea. <laughs> no chance of you turning into a zombie, as I'm at.
0: Certainly these days, when I see that, you know, a film is a zombie film, I'm largely put off it. You know, I don't tend to watch a lot of zombie films anymore because, you know, as a subgenre, I think it's, it's very, very overplayed. When this came out, it was before the genre had got quite so tired. So, you know, it certainly piqued my interest. But I think even if it came out today, it's so sufficiently different. It doesn't feel to me like a zombie film.
2: Certainly nothing like Walking Dead.
1: So what do we make of the actual virus, then? You know, this this virus that infects words.
0: Well, the director, Bruce MacDonald, did actually sort of break down some of the rules of it in an interview. He said, there are three stages to this virus. The first stage is you might begin to repeat a word. Something gets stuck. And usually it's words that are terms of endearment, like sweetheart or honey. The second stage is your language becomes scrambled and you can't express yourself properly. The third stage is that you become so distraught at your condition that the only way out of the situation you feel, as an infected person, is to try to chew your way through the mouth of another person.
2: Which is where the sim- uh, the potential significance of the cat poster comes in, given that the name on the poster was Honey.
0: Yeah, I and mean, it's never stated explicitly, but I guess it's sort of hinted that that may even have been ground zero for the infection, that just the name of that cat, Honey... Yeah, then goes off and sparks something bigger.
1: Yeah, because there's a bit of description, descriptive text in the intro titles that talks about this cat, and it's hard to see what relevance it has at that point. It just seems like a an oddball intro, really. Yeah, and it's mentioned a few more times as the
0: film goes on, but again, yeah, it's never stated explicitly. But I think you know the fact that it keeps coming back as a a recurring element means that it must be significant.
1: But strange also that the virus only infects the English language. I
0: wondered whether it was significant that this was a Canadian film because, you know, Canada is obviously a country where um, there have been... At least social battles fought over language for most of its history, that, you know, you've got a, a Francophone community and you've got an Anglophone community. And the Francophone community certainly, you know, fights to keep its, its language separate, to keep it, you know, its language dominant in its own areas. When um, Mazzy and, and Briar are worried about infection, you know, they, they, they do switch to French and French seems to be safe. In fact, when, when they get that uh, that que- the question from the BBC um, as to whether this is actually you know some kind of um, political thing or whether it's uh, uh, some kind of revolution that's going on coming out of uh, you know, the, the, the French-speaking community.
2: Admittedly, I've not read much of him, but I know that Scott highlighted there
1: was quite a bit of a William Burroughs influence within this as well. Burroughs has got a famous line about language being a virus from outer space. Exterminating rational thought and and Burroughs kind of cut up technique of actually sort of attacking you know it attack his manuscripts and cut them up and reassemble them in in bizarre and surreal ways. I don't think he just randomly did that. I think there was some craft to it that he, he probably selected, you know, some choice phrases. Yeah, but um, you know, certainly choice phrases that would randomly uh, come up he would particularly like.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and having read some of Burroughs's cut up books. The effect of reading them is quite bizarre. It's a difficult thing to do at first, but as you read more and more of this cut-up prose, it does actually start to undermine your sense of language and your sense of reality and your sense of narrative. It's almost dreamlike, the state you get into, that you're reading these things that grammatically make sense, that have elements that on their own make sense, but then strung together... Don't quite mesh, but the human mind, being a pattern matching thing, will then go ahead and make sense out of them where there is no sense to be found. And dear God, it's trippy. I
1: remember one of his lines that he created was "Cruel winds blew the shot," which uh, he certainly found a relevance in, given that he'd <laughs> uh, blown his wife's head off with a, a gun accidentally. Yes. Hey, do you want to see our famous William Tell trick? <laughs> you know that one, Matt. Oh yes. <laughs>
2: I was thinking it's if I read, uh, if I was to go back and read Burroughs, it would be a good time to do some prep for running an over-the-edge campaign. Oh, good, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Given the the influence of the cut-ups on the game. Yes, yeah, so over-the-edge is pretty much William Burroughs, the role-playing
0: game. <laughs> we also have this whole thing about endearments being particularly dangerous. That's a weird thing. I don't know what the two of you make of it, but yeah, I was wondering whether that's because... You know, it represents a moment of vulnerability or increased connection between people.
1: Yeah, I think sort of emotionally more laden phrases perhaps resonated more with the conversationalists, the zombies. Somehow yeah. it kind of latched into them more strongly.
2: I, I was going to say, it's a very lo- they're very loaded words. They've got lots of connotations, they've got lots of meaning, so potentially, therefore, one word has more potential hits.
1: But actually, the words score. that we see in the film that are picked up on, like missing, sample breathe, kill, they don't really fit that. Yeah.
2: But that's because they are potentially the old random word here and there that is their trigger word. Hmm. Whereas the only term of endearment really we see that I can think of is honey. But do you think each
1: person's got their own word then?
2: Yeah.
0: Unique to them. Well, that's an interesting thing because, I mean, we're told this, but we're told this by Dr. Mendes and... Yeah, honestly, you know, th- there's no real reason to believe anything that he says in the film. I'm mean, sure some of the things he's saying seem to match what's happening. But uh, at the same time, he does seem to be a bit of a loon.
1: Well, also, there's the question of why was the mob attacking Dr. Mendez's office mm. in the first place? Why him? Why is he so important in all this? Was he the cause of the outbreak? And if so, then, you know, how did the mob know this? Was he working on a cure for it? I mean, probably, presumably not. Did we get a
2: definitive statement as to what type of doctor he was?
1: No. I assume a medical doctor, but... No.
2: Because I was wondering if maybe he was a vet, and that that's where the girl that we see, at the be- or the woman we see at the beginning of the film, goes looking for her cat to see if they've turned up at the vet. And that it's then that becomes ground zero, as she infects more and more people, either on her way to there or while she's at the vet.
0: It could be that that does actually fit... I don't know if either of you have seen it. The one film this reminded me of more than anything else isn't a horror film. Um, Have either of you seen an old Oliver Stone film? Uh, I think it was from the late 1990s. Uh, In fact, no, it was 1988, I think it came out, uh, called Talk Radio. No. It was um, based on a play by Eric Boghauzin, and it stars him as well, um, as this sort of talk radio DJ in Dallas, I think it is, or certainly in Texas. It's shot in a very similar way. It almost all takes place in the studio, in a sound booth. And it is, you know, this, this DJ and his slightly antagonistic uh, relationship with his producer getting in lots of calls from the outside world and the way these shape his life. If that aspect of Pontypool appeared to, to you at all, then you should definitely seek out talk radio.
1: Mm. Matt, you were the first one to sort of comment on that final scene, because I think, uh. <laughs> what, what did you make of it? I... I
2: I'm going to stick with the fact it was a Sin City homage because that's the only sense I can pin on that scene.
1: <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, I having watched it, I kind of got a warning from Matt about it. I don't know, I just read that as a bit of a joke between them that they kind of stuck in afterwards because it didn't really seem to fit with the rest of the film.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've encountered a few different theories about this and I'm not quite sure what I believe. Yeah. You know, uh, one is, you know, someone who supposedly had a chat with Tony Burgess about it, and yeah, you know, it, it basically was exactly what you just said, Ball, That it doesn't mean anything. That you know, it was just there because they felt like putting it in. Yeah. Um, another is that there is this, uh, you know, in in the that final bit before the credit sequence with with Mazzy and Briar, there's the idea that you know languages sort of creating their reality and that by deconstructing it uh, and by changing what language means they're changing their reality and so that this is potentially you know the, the new reality they've created for themselves by
2: doing so There is one scene though in the film leading up to this uh, before this point where the same uh, visual style is used uh, when Maz is reading out a list of obituaries Yes that, again, is shot in a very comic book style, black and white, very um, pen and ink style drawing, or at least overtone, that, again, has that kind of Sin City vibe to it. But that's the only time that it's thematically seen other than at this very last end scene. So whether it was the fact that they've died, or if it was a bomb that dropped, or whether it is an alternate reality forged by language... We don't know!
0: The idea I've heard that I like the most, though, however is that y- you've got the idea that by robbing language of its meaning that it acts as a disinfectant for the virus, that it it robs the virus of its potential. So the idea that by subverting what the film is about and subverting the roles of the characters and and changing the meaning of all that and turning it into something nonsensical, that it acts as a final disinfectant for the audience as they're coming away from
1: the film.
2: Oh, yeah. mm hmm
1: And now let's take a look at what we can take from Pontypool for our gaming.
0: Well obviously the big one here for me is the use of language in it. Language is a threat, language is an infection. And I mean this is something that you know I found myself drawn to over and over again in gaming. You know, I've done quite a lot of it in William Shakespeare's The King in Yellow, but I mean the first time I really played around with that was um a game that you played ages ago paul uh that over the edge yeah over
1: I the had. edge game it was really good um this was early days of the milton keynes club probably a good 10 years ago or more we were you know went to Alamazia and we were digging around and we were kind of investigating things and then we, we started picking up on these documents and words would, you know, start, the text would start creeping around and, and crawl up our arms and, you know, be chasing words down corridors and things like this. It was uh, it was very effective. It was, it was really good. I'm not, I'm not quite sure that I made sense of it or that, you know, <laughs> I was supposed to. But, yeah, it was, it was a good one. I mean, another cool thing about this, I think, is the environment it is set in. And it reminds me a little bit of some of the Twilight Zone episodes mm-hmm. where, you know, you're locked in. A radio studio there's only three people in there and they're kind of you know their interaction with the outside world they have some but can we trust it or not i mean i think we can in this film but we're not really sure about that and in the twilight zone i can remember one in a in a bomb shelter and and you know when the whole thing is set there as a viewer you're like well is it really a bomb shelter you know how much time has passed on the outside do these people in, on the inside really know what's going on um, so I think there's a lot of scope there for scenarios you know that, that kind of use that environment. What other environments could be like that? I've used a library before a library, but yeah not really isolated though or not. Oh,
2: to a degree that it's a single building separated from other buildings on a campus and that it has a couple of floors, but otherwise it's a it's an enclosed environment in the sense that no one leaves the building right.
0: And one you mentioned when we were discussing this earlier, Paul, before we were recording, uh, was a submarine, as in you know the classic Grace Under Pressure uh, yeah. scenario. Yeah,
1: yeah, I kind of like the uh, you know or lock in in a pub or something like that. It's, yeah. uh it's kind of cool. Go to the um, Winchester and wait for this all to blow over. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There are certainly some very cool films that you could draw
0: upon for inspiration there. I mean, you know, if you're doing a submarine scenario, uh, there's an old horror film called Below. Well, I say old, from the 1990s, I think, uh, which is a ghost story set on board a submarine. And it's, it's really quite effective.
1: Yeah. A, the isolation, and B, the unreliability of your information about the outside world. Knowledge that there's a threat if you go outside, which is going to keep the players... Or, not necessarily keep them indoors, but it's going to make them cautious about going outside. But if you can kind of seed, you know, uncertainty about quite what's going on outside as well, and maybe they've got different stories among them to get a bit of paranoia going. I remember one idea
0: that used to bounce around my head was uh, back in the late 1980s when I first moved to the UK, I uh, worked for a while as a switchboard operator for British Rail. And one of the things that I had to do uh, was take emergency calls uh, because British Rail had its own telephone network. The telephones that were on the station, uh, instead of going through to the outside world, if you pick them up and dialed 999, they go through to the, the central BR switchboard at Waterloo Station. And so, yeah, that's what I used to I used to answer those calls. And, you know, some of them were pretty hair-raising stuff. I used to sort of had this, not, not quite nightmare, but just this kind of dark thought bouncing around that if something, you know, really apocalyptic started happening around London, that, you know, I, I'd start sort of piecing it together from all these calls that were coming in. You know, or, or at least, you know, we, we'd start getting the switchboard swamped with all these strange emergency calls and just sort of pick out little elements of that. And I keep thinking that would make a, a, you know, a great setup for a game.
1: Yeah, I mean, imagine working in a call centre just selling double glazing or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're going to be just calling people up and people, I imagine, on that job, it must be a nightmare anyway because nobody's got the patience to really talk to you. But some people do, um, for whatever reason. And you're going to pick up some very strange, garbled accounts of what's going on. And if it escalates very quickly as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a,
0: an idea That, yeah, for a Call of Cthulhu type thing, I mean, particularly if you're given a list of names that particularly deal with a a, a, a particular neighbourhood, then, yeah... Perhaps there is something strange that's going on there. Perhaps there's a cult growing there or whatever. And the the people you're speaking to are desperately trying to communicate something to you. Maybe they're members of the cult and are trying surreptitious ways of undermining your reality to draw you in. Maybe some of them are people who've been affected, who are, you know, th- this is the first sane human voice they've heard in a while and they're desperately trying to cling on to it.
2: One thing that I know you'd mentioned, Scott, was that the sub genre of the zon- uh, zombie movie has been quite. Done to death. Pun intended. (laughs) Uh, Are there any other interesting variants on zombies that we can think of?
0: I guess one thing that might make it more interesting for me is... Finding ways in which zombies behave or, you know, whatever you want to term zombies, people who are suffering from infections that aren't just the normal, you know, tear someone apart, eat their flesh, whatever. You know, for me, that was probably the weakest part of Pontypool, that that was the end game of it, that it was this violence. That, you know, if you're looking at perhaps David Cronenberg's Shivers as an example, then, you know, there is a bit of the violence there, but it's, it's a much more sexual thing. Or alternatively, you know, you could make it a more poignant thing whereby the infected, you know, are, are just sort of seeking comfort and company and, and you know, are, are still passing this infection around in the process, but it's, you know, perhaps destroying their faculties or something like that, not making, them, not making them dangerous, you know, directly, but certainly indirectly making them deadly.
1: But I think it robs it of some of the drama if they're not a threat. It doesn't feel as immediate... It doesn't feel like you've got to take action as directly if they're not actually hunting you down for a, you know, wishing to do you harm. I know that's pretty simple, but it does create drama and, and effect, I think, there.
0: I think another thing you can do to make zombies a bit more interesting, which I've seen a few times, is not just to treat them as completely mindless. I mean, some of the ones that have stood out to me as being more interesting. I've not seen the film yet, but I've read the book, The Girl With All The Gifts, I thought was about the only zombie media I've seen in recent years that really sparked my imagination. Uh, I mean, it's not, strictly speaking, a zombie thing, and it uh, does some very interesting things. Uh, it's, it's, it's more poignant. Um, yeah, and a lot of that comes out of the fact that at the heart of it, you have someone who is infected with this horrible
1: zombie-like thing,
0: but is still uh, a, an intelligent communicative
1: character. I think gaming wise, you know, what can we do with a couple of these characters that are, I guess, kind of NPCs in this film? So, um, there's the helicopter guy, <laughs> but more important to me, I think, is Doctor Mendez. Really, you know, he, he kind yeah. of turns up part way through through a window. He resonates immediately because we've heard about him before. He's like a key character that that is being sort of hunted down by the hordes, and then there he is. So that's quite a cool thing to do with an NPC, I think, is sort of herald them as, as something really important. But you know, they're probably dead by now. And then, you know, they just turn up.
0: But it was also the portrayal of him as well, the fact that he was such a an eccentric character, a slightly comical one that you you, you couldn't necessarily trust the things he was saying, that he behaved in an odd way in the way that he got in and so on. That it 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 undermined so much of his credibility at a time when he really needed to be credible.
1: I think it would be great to play as an NPC. He he reminded me so much of some of your NPCs, Paul. (laughs) He he did almost have a neon sign above him pointing down, saying,
2: PLOT DEVICE!
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot of fun. I liked him.
0: Another thing I think was kind of cool in this was the fact that you you had that little bit, you know, certainly towards the end, where the characters are trying to look for different ways to communicate by passing notes or speaking in languages that they don't really speak to avoid this infection. And it reminded me a little bit in that respect of the Hush episode of Buffy, uh, where the characters have all lost their voices and are desperately trying to communicate when this, this you know, horrible threat is, is coming to town.
2: Yeah. I've, well, not, I've uh, not seen that, admittedly, but I, it did... Uh... Spark a memory in me, thinking of what we mentioned before. That would be a really nice idea in some games Um, to have stock responses, like a card that you just pass the GM that says, (laughs) "I go and buy a crate of dynamite," (laughs) which would would just have a just have a stack of them. Yeah,
0: and Um, those are the only things you
2: can use. Exactly. Yeah,
1: but how would we use limited communication in the game? Because obviously, you don't want to limit it such that players can't interact in some way. I mean, I remember hearing about a game years ago called. Ug or Og. Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, which, in which all the player characters were cavemen or cave people. And the only way they could communicate was by grunting. So you couldn't I, actually use language.
0: Uh, no, I, I think they had a series of about a half dozen monosyllabic words they could use. And then one random polysyllabic, very technical term. You know, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it was something like,
1: you know, hit, fire, run, theodolite. <laughs> So where does that get us? <laughs> what can we do with the uh, limited communication? Well, I mean,
2: if if it was a scenario that revolved around a particular creature that was maybe blind but had an incredible um, sense of hearing, then that would be holding up your sight, um, holding up your notes with various things written upon them. Scratching yeah, I think that's kind of pen. cool. Or or, um...
0: or even sign language. Yeah. I, you know, watch, I, I was thinking, for example, of uh, a recent horror film called *Don't Breathe*.
2: Oh, we've Um, finally seen it.
0: Yes. Yay! Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's something a bit like that in there. Um, And the characters are trying to keep very quiet for most of the film. And so you could have a situation like that in a game where, you know, for whatever reason, the characters are unable to speak or don't want to speak or don't want to attract attention. And you could... You know, for example, just get the players to rely entirely on sign language to communicate with each other. You know, they may not have the resources to write notes. And it's sort of how clearly can they communicate to each other their intentions and what to do next just through gestures.
1: It could be a fun little bit to throw in you know like having them almost play a game of charades or pictionary or something just to communicate with each other so almost like a little game within a game but a kind of a fun scene within the film if you like maybe they can only write in reverse writing on the condensation in a window and they've got to kind of in you know um interpret what the other team want them to say something like that
2: one thing that could be because i've been looking a lot at the cult mythos and background recently um there's the labyrinth that exists below most cities that um, is a lightless subterranean world uh, that would be admitted you'd have to have players that are quite comfortable with doing this turning out the lights entirely and then relying completely on their um, on their voices and their being able to communicate solely with that and no sight at all mm. that could be quite an interesting interesting thing to throw in
1: do wonders for your dice rolls matt
2: well, I was thinking if the GM had uh, night vision, uh, night vision goggles, they could oh. wander around and start uh, prodding players in the right, <laughs> in particular moments, <among> so, <laughs> <laughs> and then just see the see the reactions of uh, them freaking out of the table. Oh, or oh, glow in the dark dice. Uh, there's a reason why I have a mountain of glow in the dark dice.
0: <laughs> well, I was thinking rather than the GM having night vision goggles, the
2: simpler thing to do would be to blindfold the players. But that's far too simple. <laughs> yeah. and, I think there's there's more of an effect of uh, your eyes are completely open and you know there's nothing in front of you but the room is still completely pitch black. I find that more unnerving.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast
0: will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com Thanks for listening. Now it's their time once again to thank those kind and generous people who have given us money via Patreon. We rely on your donations to pay for uh, all our running costs and hosting costs and, and bandwidth costs and, and all that stuff. And so thank you very much to each and every one of you who gives us money. This, this show simply couldn't happen without you. And we have a few new backers to thank. And I think um, we've had a little surge in backers recently because we're coming up to the deadline for people getting uh, the second issue of our fanzine, The Blasphemous Tome. So if you are a backer at the time The Blasphemous Tome goes out, which we're expecting to be sometime within the next month, you will receive a copy. Uh, it doesn't matter what level you're pledging at. If you are pledging at the $1 level, you will get a single copy. If you are pledging at the $3 level, you'll get a signed copy. And if you're pledging at the $5 level, you'll get a an unsigned and a signed copy.
1: And we have a number of $1 backers. Uh, so the first one I'd like to say a big thanks to is Antti Elomar. Now, please forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your name. But yes, thank you very much, Auntie. Indeed, thank you very much, Auntie. And
0: thank you very much to Dan Callerton.
2: Indeed, thank you very much, Dan. Thanks, Dan. And another backer to thank, thank you very much indeed to Sean Murphy. Thank you, Sean. Yes, thank you very much, Sean.
1: And a thanks to Anthony Lee Dudley.
2: Yep,
0: thank you very much, Aunt.
1: Hey, hello, Anthony. Thanks. And thank you to Steve Ellis.
2: Hey, thank you very much, Steve. Cheers, Steve. And again, thank you very much indeed to
1: Justin B. Thank you, Justin. Yep, thank you very much, Justin. And now stepping up to the $3 level, a big thanks to Louis Counter. Thank you very much, Louis, and cheers.
2: Cheers, Louis.
0: And now we're moving up to the $5 mark. Oh, God. And those of you who have listened to the podcast before might well know what this means.
2: And have their earplugs ready.
0: (laughs) When someone is generous and foolhardy enough to give us $5, $5. We sing their praises.
2: Sing really is a false advertising. We've got to come up with a better word. They're like <laughs> warbling or something.
0: We, we make sounds. Paul mixes them into something even more horrendous. And then we put it on the podcast. And try never to listen to it again.
2: Yeah, I just love the fact he's got this kind of evil, malicious grin. <laughs> <He's>... <laughs> so you have been warned. This one goes out to Rachel Randolph. Thank you. Okay, thank you, thank you, mm-hmm. thank you, thank
1: colossal, thank Rachel, Randall, Rachel, <courierto> Randolph. Fluid thank, thank you, Rachel, oh,
0: you, thank
1: you, thank
2: you, thank you, thank Rachel, thank Rachel Randall
0: In between recording the podcast and doing the other things we do we do occasionally find a bit of time to play around on social media By
2: by we, we mean you
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and we do tend to talk to people there, and we've had a, a few interactions and conversations with people, which have raised questions that we thought we might want to discuss in the podcast. Just because
1: maybe more people would be interested in the answers. We've had a couple of uh, iTunes reviews recently, and we love getting these reviews. That's great. One from a British uh, listener uh, who uses the username CloudB64. Who says, the only thing that bugs them about the podcast is, what is that haunting theme music that we use?
0: Yeah, and it it only occurred to me after I read that, that we've probably never actually mentioned it on the podcast itself. We did in issue one of the Blasphemous Tome. In fact, Paul wrote a whole article about it.
1: So it's the Japanese Sandman.
0: By Paul Whiteman and his orchestra. This was a jazz record that was released in 1920. It was one of the first jazz hits. Yeah, it it is as you say quite haunting.
2: Little factoid I remember from somewhere along the way wasn't it the first recorded jazz song or something of that ilk?
0: I'd have to check my facts on this. It was one of the first, if not the first, um, jazz record released. Now, I know the first one you know, that, that actually became a hit was by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra, and I think it was the Japanese Sandman, but I won't swear to it.
2: Because yeah, I remember that Paul Whiteman and say and his orchestra get a name check in one of the
1: songs from Shog Off on the Roof. Ah, OK. Mm-hmm. And we had another query about our use of sounds from Forrest Aguera. Now, if that isn't a cool name, I don't know what is. Forrest is mm. a pretty cool first name, but Aguera, like, Aguera, Wrath of God from uh, Werner Herzog. Well, that's how I kind of looked at it anyway. <laughs> um, so respect for your name, Forrest. Um, and he asked on Twitter, uh, so there's a little clip of music on the show's outro with a viola playing and a man saying, hello, who the hell is the musician? It sounds a bit like the band Grass Cut, but not quite. Who is it? I want more. You see, I always thought he said, glub i know my wife (laughs) thinks it says glub as well she's like what's that thing saying glub at the end
0: it all sounds like hello to me
1: it's glub (laughs) Glub.
0: yeah that's your innsmouth
1: heritage showing there matt glub 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 so Forrest kind of persisted in asking about this a couple of times so i was like okay well i'm gonna have to kind of give the game away it's not as exciting as it might sound it is just some of the bundled sounds that come with the garage Band, the piece of software that I use on the computer to uh, edit the podcast.
0: given the that, game away now. Yeah, that has just shattered everyone's illusions about yeah. uh, about that music. I Look, I
1: have to <laughs> say that, Scott. I can't say it's the mad guy that lives up in the attic, can I?
0: No, no, we have promised him anonymity.
2: We have. Although, thinking of it, I do want to go and find out what the hell this grass cut is now.
1: Yeah, you've this yeah. band called Grasscut. Cut. We should uh, check that out. Hmm.
2: Also from Twitter, from Fred Keacher, we have another question, or actually not so much of a question, more yeah. of a statement. Actually, yeah, a yeah. comment, I'd say. Yeah, a comment. A comment. Yeah. A picture of a notebook kept by a GM for an RPG could be an artifact in an RPG.
0: So this makes reference to the picture that we put up on the show notes uh, to accompany our episode about uh, running published campaigns. And this was a picture that Paul took of his campaign notebook from Ars Magica, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was a a big uh, A4 kind of campaign notebook. And the thing with that, I think we didn't say at the time, was it was written by different players. It would kind of be handed around the group. So in one game, you know... One player would kind of keep the journal and then it'd be like, who wrote it last time? OK, well, you can write it this time. So it'd be passed around the group and they'd write it kind of in, in character um, as we were playing you know, at different times. I,
0: I'm um, thinking that my, my in-game notes, either as a player or as a GM, would probably make quite a disturbing uh, artefact in a game because... My handwriting is so awful that there is probably sand loss involved with just trying to work out what the hell it says. As, I... as
1: people who received your Christmas card from you will attest, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, definitely. Or from the good friends, yeah,
0: yeah. Yes, I did. I did write a disturbing number of those, and for that, I am truly
1: sorry. Yeah. So, just a, a quick plug there. If you're a, um, if you back us on Patreon, you should have received a Christmas card. Yes, with my appalling handwriting in about half of them,
0: mm-hmm. but. That actually got me thinking, you know, what we were you talking about there with that being an in-game artefact. Now, I, I kind of want to run a game of Over the Edge now where uh, one of the handouts the the players find in there is actually the scenario that they're playing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, you do have self-realisation moments, so that mm. could be quite, quite an amusing thing, <laughs> complete with the open on the page where it says, and at this point the GM should hand this scenario to <laughs> yes. his players.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And Again, over on Twitter, Noah Lloyd, a PhD student who likes obscure 18th century books, according to his uh, uh, Twitter handle. It uh, sounds like our core audience, it really. does really, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, and he says he ran Bleak Prospect, um, and, which he enjoyed, Scott, which is a scenario of yours, oh, yeah, yeah, from Nameless Horrors. Uh, he enjoyed yes. it, that's a uh, kind of defeats <laughs> the object, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, what
0: well, was he said, ringing in the new year, right? Now, this, this. It, I think it was probably the second most nihilistic scenario I've ever written. I thoroughly approve of ringing in the new year with that. So I, I hope your players suffered in all the right ways. And if that doesn't set their expectations for 2017, nothing will.
2: I was going to say, what, what was your new year's resolution? Everyone just around
1: the table looks up and says, refine my faith in humanity. <laughs> And there's a bit from one of the iTunes reviews that I've got to read out here, really, after we talked about Scott doing all his good work on social media, Matt. That's not saying he's the only one that does Have it. Have you seen <laughs> this? Uh, one, of the, one of the reviewers um, goes by the handle of Anthologus. Says, uh, Scott Dawood, who, of the three, perhaps maintains the most active online presence, deserves special kudos for being the rare gamer whose forum persona is helpful, intelligent, and keen, rather than insufferable.
2: There's no perhaps about that.
1: <laughs> How do you manage to manifest this online presence, Scott, That is so different to your real-life persona? I don't know. How does that even work? I was like, he's just got clones that he
2: keeps out the back and occasionally yeah, feeds, yeah. and that they're on Maybe. every platform all the time. You, you do do a good job, Scott.
1: Um, you well,
0: know. I, I, I'm, I'm just... I, I feel genuinely touched that someone has described me as not insufferable. <laughs> that is gen- generally the best I can hope for. But no, no, seriously, thank you for that intent. And, and, um, yeah.
1: Um... And Matt and I will hunt them down. <laughs> <laughs> and give them their bribery money. <laughs> All these people saying, Scott's our favourite. <laughs> Poor misguided fools. <laughs>
0: So if you do want to get in contact with us on social media, uh, we're there on Google+. Uh, we have a community set up under the name of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Uh, we have a similarly named page on Facebook, uh, so just search for us there. Uh, on Twitter, because of the limitations of handle lengths, we're The Good Friends of J.E., or uh, one
2: word. But we're on good enough terms with him, he doesn't mind the contraction.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's he's understanding like that um and uh, of course we can always be contacted through the blasphemous tomes website there is a contact form up there which sends us emails if you fancy writing us an itunes review we would be really really grateful
1: and in closing what are our final thoughts about pontypool bloody weird well, fairly weird yeah yeah i mean aside from the final scene it all kind of hangs together pretty well i think
2: yeah, it's the the ending is very abrupt, but that's worked on films like The French Connection and so on is a one that brings to my comes to mind quite in a similar vein that it is just a blink and you miss it cut end.
1: Yeah, I think that, that that works well. It feels very much almost like a, you know, it could be performed on stage, really. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean I I'd certainly really like to hear the radio play version of it because mm. I think it might actually be stronger in that form. But I mean that said, I think this is a magnificent film. I'd seen it many years ago, as I saw it, as I mentioned earlier. But then, watching it again this time round, I was struck at uh, just how effective it was. That claustrophobic feel, the way it builds atmosphere, and and yeah, the general weirdness of the premise. There are just so many things I like in this. But above all, I think one of the things that makes it really work for me is the fact that, as well as it being a tense and weird horror film, there are just all these little veins of absurdity, these moments of of a kind of inappropriate comedy that come up. That just act as I don't know palate cleanses, or just highlight how nasty the rest of it is.
1: Well, I think that about wraps up for tonight. So it's a good night from me, 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 me,
2: me, me,
1: me, 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 me,
0: me, 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 BlasphemousTomes.com
1: It's just another day. Another day in Pontypool. The sun came up, you did what you did yesterday, and it's exactly what you'll do tomorrow. Today's news, folks. Today's late breaking, developing just across my desk news story is this. It's not the end of the world, folks. It's just the end of the day.
0: This is Grand Lazzie for CLSY Radio Nowhere.